talking a little bit initially about some things, and you'll wonder, well, what has that got to do with Thanksgiving? But I think it'll start to come to you as we go along. So if you'll just follow with me. The text in your bulletin is from Hebrews. But my primary text this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 7. The text that's printed is from Hebrews, but my primary text this morning will be from Luke chapter 7. Hebrews 13:15 Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name I want us to look back for a minute at the time 2000 years ago before Jesus started his earthly ministry and I want us to consider for a minute the work of John the Baptist who was sent before Jesus we all Probably most of us understand the story of John the Baptist. We've all heard the story. We're familiar with it. But as we think about uh, the understanding of John's baptism and the repentance that he preached, that he called the people to, there are some questions that I have naturally. And one of them is, why was John baptizing? What, what was the difference between his baptism and Christ's baptism? What was the significance of what John was doing? Well, John the Baptist did, in fact, baptize with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people came from all around to be baptized by John. There were soldiers and tax collectors, prostitutes, and then a category just called the crowds. And he told them things that would be applicable to their lives that would show that they were truly repentant of their sins. He said to the soldiers, don't take money from anyone by force. Because if you're a soldier and you have armor and a a nice weapon, uh, you can do those kinds of things. And it's convenient, perhaps, for you. He said, be satisfied with your wages. Don't take money from people by force. To the tax collectors, he said, only collect what you're supposed to. And to the crowds in general, he said, if you have two tunics, and a tunic is basically a long shirt, okay, if you have two tunics, give one of them to someone who doesn't have any. So the people would come to him, and as they would admit their sin and agree to behave as people who were repenting of their sin, John would baptize them in water, symbolically washing them clean. And everyone there wondered who John was and how he fit into God's overall scheme, how he fit into God's plans. Not everyone submitted to his baptism. They all had something in common. All of the people who came to John had a reputation. The soldiers were bullies. The tax collectors were thieves. The prostitutes were immoral. And then there were the common people of the crowds. And by implication in the text, they were self-seeking consumers who had more than one tunic and perhaps would be good Walmart shoppers today. That's what the people he was, he was preaching to. And they all had a reputation in their lives. Some reputations, as is true today, were less socially acceptable than others. There was a particular group present 
the religious leaders, whose reputation was one of holding the people under their thumbs using the power of the religious system. While most people who heard John repented of their sins and humbly acknowledged their nasty and well-deserved reputations, this last group, the religious leaders for the most part, did not. They saw the people repenting of their sins. The religious leaders witnessed it. But their own hard-heartedness blinded them to the authenticity of the prophet. And if you remember from the Gospels, it was this group of people that Jesus many times confronted on their stubbornness and their pride and their inability to be humble. And we're going to look at one of those confrontations in just a few minutes. Well, like the people that were with them, the leaders would ask John who he was. They would say to John, Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he would give them responses, but they really had no grid to negotiate what he was saying. They had an expectation that the Messiah would baptize, or that he would do something, probably even with water, because there were references in the Old Testament to washing and sprinkling with water that they associated with the coming of the Messiah. So they had an expectation that the Messiah would baptize, but as they would ask John why he was baptizing, he would say, well, I'm not the Messiah, and I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. He was skirting around the issue with them. But John gives his reason for baptizing in John 1.31. He said, I did not recognize him. That is, John is saying about Christ. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. So the whole reason why John was there baptizing with water, the primary reason why John was there baptizing with water, was so that Jesus could be manifested in Israel. So that Jesus could be seen in Israel. And this statement John made to them was made as he remembered Jesus' baptism, as he remembered the moment when God confirmed Jesus to John as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The moment when the Holy Spirit, if you remember, came out of heaven and descended and he remained on Christ in the form of the dove, fulfilling God's word to John that this is the sign that he would see, the event that he would see, confirming the identity of his Messiah. John had... John was there baptizing Jesus. The dove came down, ascended or descended and uh, remained upon Christ. And God said, God spoke audibly at that time. The people heard God say in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John's ministry was a ministry for the manifestation of Christ in general. And the pronouncement of God at Jesus' baptism was that manifestation or declaration made in particular, this is my beloved Son. It's very interesting, isn't it, that the the very practice that's most associated with the acknowledgement of our sin and the acknowledgement of those people's sins would be the very stage for the introduction of the person who would free them from that sin. The point at which they were confessing their sin and repenting of their sin was the very place where Jesus this, the, the Messiah, the one who would deliver them from it, was introduced. What set Jesus apart from those many who were acknowledging their sins in their baptisms at that time? Well, obviously, one thing that definitely sets him apart is that he was the only one there who was sinless. And that sets him apart from everyone, all mankind ever, that he was sinless. 
But one more thing sets him apart. And that is the immediate verbal witness of God testifying to the reputation of His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God verbally attested to the character of Jesus Christ. Now, everyone else there could also produce character witnesses of sorts, like we could, right? And mostly, the witnesses we produce and the witnesses they could produce are witnesses really to how much of a character they were or how much of characters we are, if people really know us. But God witnessed to the character of His Son verbally. And how hideous at that moment that the men in religious leadership would refuse baptism at the very inauguration of the Messiah that would provide the spiritual grace that all of water baptism has symbolized. The coming of the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And why did they refuse? Why did they refuse? Well, the Bible says in John 3, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. John 3.19 Why did these men refuse baptism? They refused baptism because their deeds were evil and they did not want them to be exposed. They refused baptism and repentance because of their reputations. Now, if reputation is such a big deal, why did the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes allow themselves to be baptized? Well, we understand that there has to be uh, an acknowledged work of God in the hearts of people for them to come to repentance. That is a given. But when we think about sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, we all know that they're the really bad people, right? Right? Those are the really bad people. I hope you hear the sarcasm. The fact is, we merely know the reputations of some people because their sins are evident. Some sins are like heralds announcing and defining us to everyone we meet. 1 Timothy 5, verse 24 says, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow. The sins of some people are already exposed to us. And it's very clear. There's no veneer, there's no facade, there's no way to cover up. So why did the not-so-bad people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the trial lawyers, refuse baptism? And when I say not-so-bad, again, I hope you hear the sarcasm in what I'm saying. Why did they refuse baptism? Were they really not-so-bad? Were they really not-so-bad? Now, I ask that question, but I have to tell you that at that time, there were people that were there who thought that those men were really not so bad. Aside from those men themselves. And I have to tell you that that same thing is true today. There are people in this room who think there are other people in this room who are not so bad as they are. And unfortunately, or perhaps more unfortunately, there are people in this room who think that there are other people in this room that they're better than that they're in a different class then. And that was true at that time as well. Were the Pharisees bad? Jesus called them whitewashed 
sepulchers or whitewashed tombs. You know what a tomb is, right? Well, a tomb is something that we build that's pretty, but that we end up filling with things that, are, that become so foul and, and awful that we have actual laws surrounding them and how people are supposed to be around them and what we can do in the vicinity of them, lest the contamination that's contained in those sepulchers or in those tombs somehow comes out and contaminates the people. When Jesus was calling them whitewashed tombs, it wasn't really much of a compliment. Okay? They were as bad as all of those ones who had repented and all of those ones who had submitted to John's baptism. Now, at this point, as we're thinking about reputation, as we think about the reputations of those people, as we think about the reputations of the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders and the lawyers, I want us to change gears. I want us to change gears, keep moving forward with the understanding of reputation, with the understanding of repentance. But understand that as we're moving forward, we're seeing the, the effects of these reputations and the effects of repentance in a specific application, and that is in worship. Every act of repentance is an act of obedience. And every act of obedience is an act of worship. Now, I'm going to focus for our benefit this morning on the extravagant public adoration and celebration we give to God, but I want you to to understand that worship is much more than that. But I want us to look at this for a minute and focus on it just to kind of tune our minds in to understanding the effects of repentance and reputation on worship. My, fo- my favorite Old Testament example of extravagant, of extravagant public worship uh, is the story of David. How many of you love that story of David dancing before the ark as an extravagant picture of public worship? Four. That's... Do you have hands? Okay. David is bringing the ark back. He's been fearful of the ark because of the things that have surrounded the ark, because of God's holiness that surrounded the ark. He's been fearful of it. But interestingly, the man who was keeping the ark was being blessed by God. And David didn't want to miss out on that blessing. So David decided he would bring the ark back to Jerusalem so that it would be with him and that he could receive the blessing of it. And the Bible says that David, as the ark was being brought into the city, David put on an ephod, a linen ephod, and he was dancing in front of the ark with all his might. I mean, he was dancing like the guy in Fiddler on the Roof. Or even more than that. You know how, was his name Tevye? He was dancing in front of the ark. He was making himself ridiculous in front of the ark because he was so overjoyed at the fact that his God was his God's ark was coming into his city and that he would be able to worship right there with the ark of the Lord. What happened in that story? David got through that process and he went home. It says he went home to bless his family. He went home to bless his household. And as he got home to bless his household, his wife, Michael, meets him. And Michael looks at him and he says, she says, you are such a fool. You've made such a fool out of yourself. 
in front of all the women of Israel, you've made a fool out of yourself. You put on that ephod, which is essentially just an apron. You put on that apron and you walked in front of the whole city dancing, making a complete idiot out of yourself. Don't you realize how foolish you are in front of the people? Don't you realize that you've destroyed your reputation? And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord of Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. I will give up more reputation than I've already given up. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, the women of the city that have seen me dance, with them I will be distinguished. Because he was telling Michael, look, the women, the people of the city, the Israelites, understand something about worship of God that you don't understand. They didn't care about me worshiping extravagantly before God. They weren't concerned about my reputation. They were worshiping with me. And they will esteem me, and among them I will be distinguished. So Michael accuses David of destroying his reputation, and it was probably her own reputation that she was most concerned with. But was David concerned about his reputation? I think he was about his reputation before God, but I don't think he was concerned about his reputation before the people. My favorite example of extravagant public worship in the New Testament may surprise you because you may never have considered it as a particular reference to worship, and it's found in Luke chapter 7. And here again, we pick up with the story of John the Baptist. Now, John wasn't discriminating about who he took his message of repentance to. If you remember, he took it to political leaders as well. And this found him in jail at the order of Herod. And John was in jail, and he was looking at what was probably, in his mind, going to be a certain death, and it turned out to be a certain death. And he sent a delegation of his disciples to Jesus because he was having doubts, and he wanted some assurances about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the disciples went to Jesus and in John's behalf, and they said, Are you the one, or should we look for another? And Jesus said, it says in in Luke 7, verse 21 and following, At that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Here's your answer. Look at the power. Here's your answer. Look at the message. And so the disciples went back to John, or it's implied that they went back to John and gave him these assurances. And after, after saying this to them, Jesus starts up a discourse about John, and he sets this up for his hearers, of course, and particularly for a group of Pharisees who are again there trying to keep their reputations intact. Jesus quotes from Malachi, identifying John as that announcing messenger who will tell all the world about him. 
As Jesus talks about John, he gets a response from the people who are listening. Verse 24 says, When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and lived in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. Behold, this, I'm sorry, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you that among those born of women there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And it says in verse 29, When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. What did the people acknowledge? They acknowledged God's justice. God's justice in what? What was God's justice that they were acknowledging? God's justice that John's baptism, that baptism of repentance, was just that God was just in demanding that they repent of their sins. And by submitting themselves to it, they gladly admitted their reputations. They gladly gave up their reputations. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's intention for themselves. What were they rejecting? They were rejecting repentance because they did not want their deeds to be exposed. They were men of reputation. And one of them was about to have a dinner party. And so he said to Jesus, come and dine with me. And the Bible says that Jesus went and entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, this is my favorite New Testament worship story. These next two verses. So listen, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair, the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And you see the picture there. Here was a woman who had heard the message that Jesus, the Messiah, was a friend to sinners. And it just so happened that she was a sinner. Everyone knew it. She had a reputation. Do you think everyone there at the party knew what her reputation was? If they didn't know before the party began, they knew soon after it started because the host thought it was his duty to announce her unworthiness to everyone else. And he says to them in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. I imagine you could see the distaste on his face as he was watching the whole thing unfold. Doesn't Jesus know she's a sinner? 
And look at her. She's just so emotional. She's gone all to pieces. She's crying all over his feet. And she's, she's wiping his feet with her hair. What a scene in my house with all my friends. Jesus, what about your reputation? Look at this woman. What about your reputation? And then comes the the confrontation that I was speaking of earlier. Verse 40 says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. Now you got to think he might have regretted that reply at the end. Say it, teacher. He says, A money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Now remember, we're in a crowd. We're having a dinner party. Here's Simon. Here's Jesus. Here's the woman. Here's Jesus turning toward the woman, but saying to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did the Pharisee have less to be forgiven of than the sinner woman? Did the Pharisee have less to be forgiven of than the sinner woman? Be honest now. Your world isn't as different as, isn't that different from his world. Did the woman think he had less, did the woman think that the Pharisee had less to be forgiven of than she did? I think she probably did. Not that it really mattered to what happened in her life. Is it a bigger sin to be a prostitute or to reject God's redemptive purpose for yourself so that you can maintain the facade of your reputation? He didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't give Jesus a welcome kiss. Can you imagine being one of the few people on earth who was able to kiss Jesus incarnate during his earthly ministry to embrace him and kiss him and just to pass by the opportunity because of your 
your reputation? Because you are so good? He didn't anoint Jesus' head with oil. And at least in the text, he didn't get his sins pronounced as forgiven. Likely, he sat around the table talking with his guests, as it says, and saying, who is this man that even forgives sins? And I'm not sure what the tone of the question would be. It might have been more judgmental than the way I just gave it. The correct question is not, did the Pharisee have fewer sins than the woman? The correct question is, did the Pharisee love Jesus at all? I was thinking about the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. There's by the benediction and maybe part of the benediction that Paul gives is that little phrase in verse 22. Does anyone have 1 Corinthians 16:22 memorized? If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be damned, accursed. Perhaps the Pharisee did not love the Lord at all. He should have been on the floor crying, Forgive me! Forgive me! But reputations are horrible masters. Horrible, horrible masters. Now I want us to change gears one more time, so we're going to push in the clutch again. You know, you move the gear shift. Repentance, reputation, worship, and thanksgiving. You can make application of repentance of reputation in many areas. I think they could all be collected under one umbrella if you read Romans 12, 1 and 2. And that umbrella would be worship, that we, we give our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. This is our spiritual act of worship. But we all have pressures. We all have circumstances surrounding us that pressure us on this matter. Just like David did. How could David have felt before his worship dance debut? How could he have felt before he danced in front of the altar? Do you suppose he knew that there were critics out there? Do you suppose there was any intimidation for him? Why didn't he protect his reputation? How could the sinner woman have felt before going into the house of someone, going into the house of a Pharisee? You remember, she wasn't invited that we know of. Going into the house of a Pharisee who very likely, when he would see her on the street on any given day, would cross over to the other side of the street just so he wouldn't have to be on the same side of the street as the sinner woman. How could she have felt going into that situation? Do you suppose she was intimidated? You suppose it was difficult for her to become an extravagant worshiper of God in the house of the Pharisees and a crowd of people who hated her and thought, that, thought her beneath themselves? Why didn't she protect her reputation? I had a man in my parents' church when I was growing up. His name was Leland Miller. You can't see this. 
but I just want you to know it's here. This is a picture of my grandfather's Sunday school class. All of these men are like yesterday's grass. They've all withered and died, and they've all gone on to glory. But this man right here, a second from the left, is Leland Miller. Now, Leland, when he was a young man, was a hellion. He was the sinner in town, so to speak. And it just so happened that later on in his life, he met the one who loved sinners. He met Jesus Christ. And it changed his life. And he became an extravagant worshiper. And I have memories of Leland who died when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 years old, maybe 12 years old. I have memories of him in church service. An old man. An old man who would be worshiping and cry. And he would take out his handkerchief. And he would do something that you guys probably have never seen anyone do. He would run up and down the aisles and wave his handkerchief and cry. Now, Leland was an extravagant worshiper of God. Leland understood that he had been forgiven of his sins. And he loved much. He loved much. Now, if we saw that, we might say, how embarrassing for Leland. Or, how embarrassing for the church. How are we ever going to get this church to grow if we have Leland running up and down the aisles? Right? Remember what David said. With the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Leland had abandoned his reputation because he knew it wasn't worth anything. And he was worshiping the Savior who had saved him. Perhaps the only inappropriate way that we can worship God, honestly, finally, the only inappropriate worship is when we worship Him with an unrepentant heart. When we do the motions, but we don't actually love Him. And that, that does occur. It occurred in the, in the Scriptures. If you read Isaiah 1... God is telling the Israelites, I, don't, I hate your feasts. I hate what you do. Psalm 51, it is a broken and contrite heart. That's what I want. If we were at an IU football game and the running back broke through the line and was tearing down the field toward the goal line, what would we all do? Wow. Go! Go! Right? That's what we would do. We would be screaming, pushing the people in front of us so that we could see better. Right? I wonder sometimes when we sing that song, We Will Dance. You know that song we sing here sometimes, We Will Dance, and everybody likes it, or most everybody does. And I like it. It's a good song. I wonder when we sing that song, we will dance, if we really will dance. Or if we'll be in heaven looking around saying, I don't want to mess up my reputation. I'm not arguing this morning that we all should start running up and down the aisles. 
But I am arguing that we should be extravagant public and private worshipers of God. It isn't just a matter of our Sunday morning services. When we forego our reputations in the university by telling our fellow professor or our professor, who's not our peer, or our fellow student who is our peer, about sin and about judgment and about the power of the cross of Christ, we are extravagant worshipers of God. We have thrown our reputations aside. You don't start talking about the power of the cross of Christ and think you're going to hold on to some reputation in this world because it isn't going to happen. When we ignore the pressures of others and lead our children in godliness, training them up in the way they should go, we are extravagant worshipers of God. When we lay aside our reputations and refuse to cave to unethical practices that we're pressured to do at work for the sake of Christ's reputation, we are extravagant worshipers of God. Are we as needful of Christ as the sinner woman? How much have you been forgiven of? Do you realize how much sin you have? Do you realize how much of a sinner you are? Do you realize that there is no one in the category of having been forgiven little? Everyone who comes to Jesus has been forgiven much. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to invite you to humble yourself and cast aside your reputation and confess your sin and your need to God. Do do not, for the sake of your own reputation, refuse Him who will forgive you of all your sin. Do we worship the same God that that David cast aside all pride for? How is our humility demonstrated? How do we extravagantly demonstrate our love for the one who has forgiven us so much? Or do we protect our reputations? Now, I had the order of the service reversed this morning not so that, we, so that I could talk you into dancing and not so I could talk you into running the aisles. I had the order reversed so that we, after the preaching, could have a moment to reflect on our reputations and so that we could corporately and individually through Christ bring a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. It is the thanksgiving of our lives that can only come it can only come when we have been humble before God. So we think about thanksgiving this week, we think about our humility. We think about God's work in giving us a true reputation. Every Sunday we have a confession of prayer and an assurance of pardon, and that's part of the reason why we do that. So that every week we can be reminded that we have to humble ourselves before the Lord. Even today, David, 
the king, has a reputation before God. Do you think David's reputation before God today is adulterer? Do you think his reputation before God is murderer? David was both of those things. Or is David's reputation before God the man with a heart after God? That is David's reputation. God gave him that reputation. Do you think that the sinner woman has a reputation before God today? Do you think God looks at her and says, there's the sinner woman? Do you think so? I think her reputation is, as pronounced by Christ, lover of God, anointer of the feet, forgiven. That is her reputation. And she can demonstrate her extravagant worship because of it. Would the worship team please come forward? And will you stand with me for prayer? Father in heaven, every one of us here this morning, to some degree or another, struggles with our reputations. We struggle with the sin that we think that nobody knows about. We struggle with those circumstances that we think we have covered and that no one is aware of. And we think we have a facade. We think we've maintained something. And all it has done is restricted us from coming to you in worship. And all it has done is restricted us from victory over sin. And all it has done is kept us from having the power of God work in our lives. Father in heaven, I pray that you would release us from our horrible pride, our horrible reputations. Release us from them, Lord, so that we can truly worship you extravagantly. Not here alone, not just in this service, not just with the songs that we sing, that we do sing thankfully to you. But, Father, in every activity of our lives, that we would be worshiping you extravagantly. Have mercy on us, I pray this morning. Give us your spirit. Thank you, Father, that you loved us. Thank you that you loved us. Allow us to kiss you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let your heart be called to worship our King from these words in Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Billion in 